0: So we're continuing on today with eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. Last week, we took a break because it was Pentecost, so I gave uh, both the 8.30, or I'm sorry, the 9.30 message. The 8.30 people are the really... The, they're, yeah, at 8.30, I have a message for the people who are really serious. No, uh, <laughs> the 9.30 people, and uh, at, the, at 10.30, uh, we spoke messages appropriate to Pentecost. Uh, both of them were... Very good and stirring. I hope you'll listen to him if you didn't hear him last week. And even if you did hear him, I hope you'll hear him again. So on our uh, eight, eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel, we are on element six. If you look at Roman numeral one on your outline, you'll see the eight elements. And what we're trying to do is counteract what many have said has been over a 150-year-long trend to have a reductionist gospel in, Amer- in America which has lots of reductionist elements, anti-intellectualism, antinomianism, and, for the, and Gnostic, to name a few. So what we're trying to do is kind of counteract that with a more biblical gospel and equip you. Obviously, when you're taking someone through Bible studies and helping someone come to know the Lord, you, may, you probably can't cover all of this. But if you understand that the gospel is not for praying the sinner's prayer, The gospel is for every day. The gospel is how we walk with Christ. There's never a time where you don't need to reorient yourself according to the gospel of the kingdom of God every single day. That's part of why we have an encounter with God. That's been, you know, that was in old-fashioned times called spiritual disciplines of seeking God through Bible study, prayer, reflection, worship. Today it's kind of degenerated into an idea of devotionettes and having 10 or 15 minutes or whatever. But the, the idea of getting alone with God and encountering God with er- every day is partly to humble ourselves and understand who he is and then understand who we are. And if you look at the eight essential elements of the gospel, element one is who God is. Element two is who we are. And so uh, element three, the Ten Commandments, comes in be- partly because Part of who we are, as we're going to touch on today, is we are so dead in our sins, we are so deceived, we are so blind, we are so hard of hearing, that God has to both pre-evangelize and evangelize us. And he uses the Ten Commandments to help us uh, as our tutor to lead us to Christ, to, to, to see His who he is in his holiness, and to see how far short we all come every day. So... Uh, We also looked at uh, the historical narrative of Israel, something that's never talked about today, but there are no examples. There's eight major presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts, all of which cover the history of Israel, and all of which draw heavily on what we now call the Old Covenant, which would be better called the Jewish scriptures. And today that's hardly ever touched upon in American history, which lends itself toward our radically individualistic understanding of being a Christian. Because one of the things that the, the Hebrew scriptures help us see is that God always wanted a people for his own possession. And he calls each of us, each of us has to enter through the door of Christ one at a time, individually. Every one of us is born into this world one at a time, unless you're twins. But even then, usually one comes out. Uh, but you're born into a family. You're not just born like out of an egg or something somewhere. You're born in, out of a person, hopefully out of a married couple, hopefully into a family, from a family into a family. And likewise in the kingdom, the reason the history of Israel is so important is because it helps us see that God never saves or calls anyone for themselves alone. It's for what he's called you to experience, receive, and give in the body of Christ. So that's what we covered in the first twenty messages. Element five we covered from we uh, in about twenty eight messages, and that was uh, basic Christology. We looked for eight messages on what you call the ontological Trinity, the being of Christ, and then we looked uh, ontological Christology, I should say. And then from and then for uh, twenty messages, we looked at economic Christology, that is the ministry of Christ. Now, uh, we're In receiving Jesus Christ, I'm going to do, I don't know how many weeks, maybe 20, I don't know, on just kind of the lead into receiving Christ, and that is, I want to give us all the biblical uh, vocabulary regarding what it means to receive Jesus Christ. One of the things, uh, and so today I'm actually going to recover some of the same ones I covered in A and B. Although I've deleted some material, added some material, because the more I, you know, what I probably did is, is bit off too many words at once, when I, and uh, so all of them I covered inadequately, and then I keep thinking of other points I should have covered with them and so forth. So we're covering some of the same ground, but we won't be making the same points about the same words. So hopefully you can, uh, you know, re-listen to A and B or review the notes and kind of mesh it all together in your mind. One of the things I wish I had covered is just the, why this biblical va- vocabulary is so important. Um, now, there's a concept called jargon. And jargon was one of the first things I learned about when I first became a Christian. Uh, of course, I came out of a, a life where I was a druggie, and I was not in the top 50% of my high school class. I was therefore accepted to college on a probationary program. And I met Christ in my first quarter, although he was already starting to draw me, quite obviously, for six months or so before that. But as I began to walk with the Lord, God birthed into me this hunger to know his word. And so as I became serious about all kinds of studies, scriptural studies, theological studies, history, etc., one of the things I began to realize is that every academic discipline— and I'll better cover what that is because I at my Sinclair classes. I actually have students who are college students who don't know when I say an academic discipline. They're like, what is that? So every branch of study is called an academic discipline. So biology or law or physics or psychology uh, or history. These are all various academic disciplines. So jargon is the vocabulary that's peculiar to a particular trade, for instance, uh, you know, heating and air conditioning guys have words they use. Uh, carpenters have words they use. Every every trade has its own vocabulary. You know, if you know people from the the Air Force, that they actually make jokes about how much, uh, what do you call it, like acronyms and stuff they have, like I'm going TDY and I'm... And um, whatever, and they got like a million of these little acronyms that you know if you're in the Air Force. And everyone else just scratches their head and goes, what are you talking about? And uh, so jargon is the vocabulary peculiar to a particular trade or a profession or an academic or a group of people. So the Bible has its own jargon. And let's look at a verse along that line, which is a really important verse. 1 Corinthians 2, I wish I had time for the whole chapter. It's a chapter about uh, what condition we are before we come to Christ, naturally-minded men, versus what we're supposed to be in Christ, spiritually-minded men. And women, of course. Mankind. So I'm picking it up kind of in uh, verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak wisdom in a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something that's hard to understand. It's something hidden in God and revealed in Christ. In him are all the secrets of, of wisdom and knowledge. All the mysteries are in Christ. But they're not hard to understand. They're impossible to understand. <laughs> and But they are understandable by the mind of the Spirit, uh, at least we don 't can never know them exhaustively, but because of the revelation of God in Christ and be, uh, who is the eternal Word of God and because of the written word of God, we can know the mysteries accurately, even though we can never know them exhaustively. But to know them accurately, we need to build a vo- biblical vocabulary to understand them and beyond that. We need to move out of our Western culture, which has been influenced by Greco-Roman paganism and humanism, which makes uh, what we think understanding is cognitive or intellectual or abstract. And biblical knowledge is always spiritual. That is concrete. It's real. It's happening. It's who you become. So to, to, when we talk about these words, These words are important to understand on a biblical or theological level, but they're important that they become in our experience. That's important. That's going to apply to everything we're going to talk about in all the 30 or 40 biblical words we're going to look at so that when you read your Bible, you're understanding what the original writers were saying better. We're going to look at all kinds of words like election and repentance and faith, and we're going to try to clear off the rubble of what our culture thinks they are and what our pseudo-Christian kind of confused culture. Uh, You know, we're living in a time of great religious confusion in the church, and we're going to try to help ourselves understand these words more accurately and more biblically. But that will do you no good unless, by the grace of God, you seek to have God work these into the fiber of who you are into the fabric of your being. You need to experience them by the power of his resurrection and by the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully that's clear. Uh, where was I? Uh, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But just as this is written, and he's quoting from the Old Testament there, that's what the small caps mean. Things which have not men have not heard or entered into the heart of man For God reveals them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. One of the reasons it's important that you get the the Holy Spirit when when you're born again. Many people have prayed a sinner's prayer and go to church. But that don't necessarily show the the qualities of a quickened spirit. When you're alive in Christ, there are certain things that will happen. When a baby's born, if the baby's born healthy and alive... She or he nurses. Uh, They go to the bathroom. They breathe. They have a nice warm 98.6 or thereabouts temperature somewhere in that neighborhood. They're not 70 degrees and they're not not breathing and they're not, not hungry. They nurse. And likewise, in the spirit, when a person's really been born again, their life will be changed in certain ways. One of which is you'll have this hunger and thirst a hunger for God's word and a thirst for his spirit and a desire to be in fellowship with his people. So, uh, now, this is not to say, you know, because the word of God always comes as condemnation to those outside of Christ, but what the grace of God is this, if that's not your experience, cry out to God. Because the Bible says, let us draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. If my life hasn't changed in ways that show the vital signs of a new birth, That's okay. Eh, You know, uh, if if you're even able to understand what I'm saying, it's because God is knocking at your door. He's drawing you. Cry out to God and say, come into my life, change me. Give me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. and So forth. Now... uh, So he goes on, you know, and he ends with this most important phrase here that's underlined. The things of God, we speak these spiritual things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And those spiritual thoughts and spiritual words are mostly in the Scriptures. Now, there are spiritual words that are extra-biblical, such as the word Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is very clear in Scripture. But no one used the word until uh, Origen used it uh, a century or so after the New Testament was written. But for the most part, the spiritual words that he's talking about are in the scriptures. So hopefully we understand that we need uh, to understand biblical vocabulary better, or else when we read our Bible, we're going to miss what it's saying. Now, another aspect of this is 1 John 2.27. I only have so much room, so sometimes I just leave a scripture there even though I want to talk about it. It's important that it goes beyond the Holy Spirit and the scriptures teaching your intellect, a point we've already made, but I want to reinforce it. 1 John 2:7, 2, 2.27 says, But as for you, you have an anointing, that is a Holy Spirit anointing, from the Holy One, and you have no one need for anyone to teach you But as his anointing is true, and his anointing teaches you all things. Now, the Bible would never contradict itself, so he's not saying that God didn't give apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He's not saying that Paul didn't tell Timothy to teach and and instruct these things. He's not saying that you don't need to listen to John's and my messages and our podcast and uh, read your Bible a lot and take systematic theology classes and read the right books. He's not saying any of that. He's not saying that we can't draw on the things the Holy Spirit has shown great men of God through all the centuries. That's why historical theology is so important. He's not saying that because that would contradict so many other verses that I wouldn't even have time to, to explain them all in, in uh, a year's worth of messages. But What he is saying that if I'm up here, even under if I'm under a great anointing of the Holy Spirit and teaching things, in amazing clarity that only God could help a person do, it will still mean nothing unless the Holy Spirit is illuminating you. That's why it's so important what you, you know, if you notice, there's more ungodly TV shows on Saturday nights than any other night of the week. Why? There, there's more, you'll have more reasons not to, not, not to spend time with God on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings than any other time, because you know what, uh, to the, you know, to the degree you get in the spirit, even when you're spending time with the Lord, you know, you gotta get rid of the distractions. Why go in your study and leave the cell phone on and look at Facebook and forget? You know, like if you don't encounter the holy spirit you'll never be illuminated to understand these things you have to be actively experiencing the presence of god that's so important that's what first john 227 is no so with that understanding we're going to get back to what we've been doing on two and three weeks ago was we're going to talk about a lot of biblical words. Now, just like in, in element uh, 5, Jesus Christ, we had two theme verses. You might recall that one of them was Matthew sixteen thirteen through 18, where Jesus says, who do people say I am? And, and Peter says, some say you're the Christ. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? Uh, because the Christian life falls or rises on who you experience and know that Christ is. And that's why Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Those were our theme verses for that section. This is our theme verses for for element 6 are John 1, 11 through 13. He, speaking of Christ, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, the motto is the word for receive. We're going to talk about that again, even though we've covered it twice already, who believed in his name, he gave the right, exousia, to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, again, I want to pick it up here. That's the ESV version, by the way, and you can compare Matthew eleven twelve. So, the first thing I want to note, in case you're not clear, is that the he's, the his's, and the hymns in these verses, all the, uh, I guess those are called prepositions, I'm not a very well-educated person, Um, they all refer to what he's been talking about in the first 10 verses. And he hasn't used the word Christ or Jesus yet, but he's called Jesus three things in those 10 verses. The first thing he's called them uh, is he's called him the Lagos. If you remember, we did two weeks uh, at the start of the the ones on Christology about the logos in, in the concept of the Logos in John's gospel and all the I Am sayings. And one of the things we want to help you see is though modern Christians often say there's seven I Am sayings in the gospel of John, because they like neat numbers like seven, there's around 40 I Am sayings in the gospel of John. Okay, so if you look at the Greek ego me, you'll see Jesus say I Am, Quite, quite purposely equating himself to Exodus three fourteen, I am that I am, around forty times in the Gospel of John. I've never counted the exact number, and it depends on whether you. When he says, "I'm the light," which he says like three times, do you count that as once or do you, you know, you count that as just one or three? But whatever. So, uh, we looked at the Lagos uh, the, you need to be aware of the tr- the word alethanos which is true. Uh, the Hagers have a daughter named Aletheia, which means truth. So when Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, that he's using aletheia. Light, phos, or phos, we, uh, photography uh, is a combination of two Greek words, phos and graphos, writing. So, you know. Pornography is fornication writing or literature. Photography is is light literature. It's it's using light to capture an image. So um, so uh, again, when he um, is talking about Jesus, he calls him the light several times. But in those ten verses, but he. Uh, even qualifies it as the true light. And at any time, of course, reading the reverse negative, what he's wanting you to see is there are false lights. Our whole world is full of false lights. Even Satan himself appears as an angel of false light, right? So that's why he qualifies the light, even though he uses it about six times in those few verses, he qualifies it once as the true light so to kind of emphasize it. And he basically says, the third thing he says about this Lagos, who is the light, is that he's the Zoe, which we get zoo from, the life of men. Apart from him, there's no life. What the, the Bible portrays is, hopefully we're going to see in this in this Receiving Jesus Christ section even more clearly, although we've hopefully emphasized that in, in uh, element 2 and 4, but what the Bible portrays people outside of Christ is the world is a bunch of dead men walking around. It's people who have a spirit, but their spirit's not functioning right. It's not because it was meant to be in fellowship with God. So they experience it. It's things like boredom. I always t- tell people, God, boredom is God's gift to you. When If you ever get bored, it's because God's trying to tell you you don't really know him yet. Once you get to know him, you'll never be bored again. You'll never have time. I uh, trust me. <laughs> you'll be lucky if you get enough sleep, <laughs> you know, uh, and you probably won't. But uh, <laughs> you'll you'll be so motivated that you'll always have something important to do. I remember boredom before I was a Christian. It was one of the most horrible things that I, you know, like of all. You know, I broke my arm. That was painful. I broke my nose. That was painful. But probably the greatest pain of all was this thing that happened before I came to know Christ all the time where I would have this feeling like there must be something to do and then I'd go well I'll go shoot some hoops in the driveway nah that's not it I'll go hit a ball in the backyard nah I'll call my friends and we'll get you know I was the kind of the organizer guy in our neighborhood or ironically, uh, they say what you do when you're eight and nine was a good clue to what you're going to be doing when you're an adult. I was the guy who every morning was calling them all and saying, "We only need one more guy, and then we can have uh, three on three, and you know, one more guy, and we can have four on four You know, and I was always selling everyone on why they should play softball or wiffle ball or basketball or football or whatever we were, whatever season it was, and and uh, why we should build a dam up the creek in the woods. And, I was always selling everyone on some project. <laughs> Let's get together and make this happen. Oops. So. Um, but the truth of the matter is I was trying to feel boredom all the time. That's really why I got into drugs and so forth, because eventually shooting hoops isn't going to quite do it. So because you have a God-shaped hole, as Augustine even said. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are ever restless till they find their rest in thee. All right, so that's uh, what he's talking about in the he's, him's, and his's. Um, Now, remember, uh, note two here, the ones who do receive him are the ones who, it says, were not born of man or of the will of God, but of the sovereign will of God. So, those who have received him are born again. When a person's born in the natural, of course it's according to the ultimate will of God, and God allows conception. But ultimately, a person is born by the choice of their parents. They are born, you're born the first time according to the will of man, at least on some level, but to those. But, on an ultimate level, it was actually according to the will of God even at that stage. Right? And you're born of flesh, and you're born of blood the first time. That's what Jesus is talking about again in John 3, when he says, unless you're born out of water, because we develop in a sack of water, and then out of the Holy Spirit. When you come to know Christ for real, you develop prenatally in the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit. That's why it is important to get people coming to into Bible studies and to worship in the church. Uh, even though we teach here at Grace Christian Fellowship, don't just bring them to church and hope the professional people get them saved, because that's what evangelism has degenerated into most of our culture. But, but you do want to get them on our turf, because hopefully if we're living godly and we're worshiping and if we're praying, if we're seeking God, hopefully the Spirit of God is dwelling in our community all week long in various people's households and prayer meetings and and where they live and where they worship and where they work and where they hang out. Now, so the ones who do receive him don't do it by the will of man. And that's what I really kind of want to, the reason I wanted to go back through all this is I felt like I needed to kind of explain why vocabulary is so important. And this second point is, I really want you to see today how much it's by the sovereign grace of God and not at all by human choice. I want to emphasize that today on several levels as we go through understanding these words again. So John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Anyone who's really progressed in Christ at all will not stand up and give a testimony like is so common in our churches today. I've been seeking for truth all my life, and I've been looking for God, and (laughs) last night I found him. Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) All your life you've been running for God, and finally he got you to a place where he drew you by his irresistible grace. Maybe he made the circumstances of your life uncomfortable enough that you saw your spiritual poverty and you saw your need. Whatever way he came chasing you, And you finally got cornered. (laughs) And that's how you received Christ. It really is that simple. And if you can't see, even as a Christian, when you have various breakthroughs in your life, you should be able to look back and see that there was a power called sin in your life that was trying not to go that much further with God. The reason people go to a church and if it seems a little too radical, they look for one that's not so radical. The reason people people kind of convince themselves, I've grown up in this, I already know all that there is to know about God and so forth, most of us are looking not to experience God deeper. And if we are looking to seek the Lord, it's because the grace of God has worked in your heart to do that. You didn't choose him, he chose you. And to whatever degree you're responding to his grace by seeking him, that was given to you against your will. Now, I didn't really understand that till I became a Christian and then started to read through Romans a bunch of times. And then I began to look back and look at all these experiences in my life where I was trying to hope there wasn't a God. I really, you know, was hoping when I think about eternity and death and all these things, you know, my thoughts, I had a whole way of trying to get God out of my, out of my thoughts. You know, I always tell the story of a guy who was on fire in my senior year of high school. He moved to our town, and there were no real Christians in our town. In our Well, there might have been a two or three, but they were kind of timid and hiding kind of thing. But this guy was like bold and brash and on fire. And he's witnessing to me, at, you know, in the cafeteria at uh, study hall or lunch or something, and... and I can remember like just consciously saying, man, I'm never going to sit near this guy again. <laughs> like I could tell if I if I talked to this guy too much, I'd become a Christian. <laughs> and that was not on my agenda. And hopefully you can see that even those of us who were Christians but were religious and self-righteous, we we you hopefully you can see that you were trying not to see the depth of your sin and not to see the depth of your Depravity, so you would see, not see the depth of your need for God. That's what I'm trying to help us see today. All right. So, in that regard, we'll have upcoming messages on foreknowledge, election, and predestination. Uh, the last two weeks, we've talked about drawing. Unfortunately, we're going to talk about drawing again today. And today, I'm hoping to get, but it doesn't, no, it's not looking good. I'm hoping to get to the word conviction at the end, which I really want to spend some time on if I ever get there. All right, so in regard to this word drawing, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 12, 32, if I'm lifted up, I will draw him into myself. No one means, you know, that we have this part of our deception is when, when the Bible says each one or anyone or everyone or no one, we somehow have these rationalization processes that were the exception to that. In fact, anyone who's struggling with condemnation, I always say, first thing I want you to do is memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13, for there is no temptation but such as common to man. And God is faithful who provide the way of escape and so forth. Because like there's, you're not in any special categories except that he chose you and he loves you and, and he loves you. And if anyone has ever had more than one kid, they know you love all your kids differently, but the same. (laughs) They're each unique individuals and bring different kinds of joy to your heart and so forth, but you're committed to every one of them. And, And so we're unique in the sense that you are the unique choice of God that no one else is. But we have all the same human nature, all the same problems, all the same things that he's delivered us from. There's no one who's actually a worse sinner than others on certain levels. Um, In case you're not aware aware of it, uh, there's maybe like a hundred best Christian books that were ever written. And on the short list would be a a book called The Bondage of the Will, uh, which was written to refute Deciduous Erasmus, or also known as Erasmus of Rotterdam, who wrote, uh, I think he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. And... uh, He was defending the doctrine of his time of salvation by human effort and by good works. If you notice, even in evangelical circles, what is the number one message that sells that the big preachers of the big churches have? They're self-help, and you can have your best life now, and you can do it for yourself, and it's a non-grace message. And the best-selling books in Christian bookstores are self-help books self-improvement books. Because the more things are different, the more they stay the same. It's the same problem that led to the Reformation in the first place. Evangelicalism has become a very performance base. You s- receive God by grace, but you do the rest by your own works. Which is never going to fly biblically. Now, So, the, the, the truth of the matter is the mystery of God is that your you the bible says in colossians 1:13 that you were held captive by satan to do his will he transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son if you are a seeker of god it's because he made you a seeker of god you couldn't even know that you needed to unwrap the free gift if he hadn't motivated you to unwrap the free gift you couldn't have even realized that it was a gift worth receiving So, now, this word draw is from the word elko, or or it would actually, with the little thing that goes this way, be pronounced helko, or actually, it'd be like helko. I can't do this. uh, Greek and German, roll the H kind of things. To draw, drag off, metaphorically, to draw by an inward power to lead and to impel. Now, if any of you are familiar with the concept of tulip from the... the, uh, from the Reformation, uh, which is usually attributed to Calvin, that would be three of the, of the letters in TULIP. All right, so let's flip over. Hopefully I'm, uh, I'm going to have to pick up my speech. The word receive, we've given a lot of attention to, but it's an active verb is all I want you to see. Receiving, God has to motivate you to get up and do it. And again, the, the best analogy I've ever heard, Is if you're sitting in a classroom, I can go in there and I can open the door and say, there's a fire in the building. Get out, get out, get out. And you can just choose to keep sitting there. You can probably think, like if you went to my high school, you'd think, oh, that's Greg Weiss. He's up to some, he's a rascal. He's organizing some student walkout again or some nutty thing. I I ain't listening. I'm not getting up and I'm not getting out. (laughs) The source is not trustworthy. And uh, so... Um, and now on the other hand I can take a shop vac reverse the hose so it blows the air out and I can throw a hornet's nest into it and I can blow it into the room while I'm yelling get out, get out, get out you're likely to get up and get out now I didn't make you get out but I did make you see the advantages of getting out (laughs) I made you willing to get out and so it was God, God's grace. It, you know, like the Amazing Grace song has a great line. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Okay, so receiving is an active word. Um, and receiving always has two processes. One is regeneration. The other is conversion, which we're going to deal a lot with words regarding conversion over the next several weeks. Um, now, the other thing I want you to see about receiving is the dual lies or myths of our culture of I can do it later. I know lots of people say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I know it's the truth. I'm just not ready to, uh, I'm all about me and myself and I and my career. And many Christians are really putting God off. They go to church. They do. Uh, I was taught this by a guy named Dr. Eugene Tenbring. Father of my good friend, Victor Tenbrink, who was a missionary to India and a charismatic Anglican priest. And, uh, you know, he said to me one day, you know, Greg, you're supposed to go to church to seek God. But the vast majority of people go to church to avoid God. When he first said that, I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, are you speaking in riddles (laughs) or what? And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized he's so right. Because most of us, until we, you know, we basically, God has brought us to a certain level of the knowledge of Him that we can't escape, and we do what it takes to kind of shut Him up and to kind of appease Him. We dabble at it, and we try to do the minimum we can to seek God and be on fire for God. And what we need is a full conversion where. Like the Ethiopian court official, look, there's water. Why can't I have everything God has for me? I want to be healed and be delivered and and become a disciple and become a follower and study and and be filled with the Spirit. And, and, you know, I don't want to have selective areas where I'm into this aspect of God, but I'm not into that aspect of God. And, you know, and I love to worship and so forth. But I'm not much about Bible study. Or I, I love, you know, the, 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 like the frozen chosen Presbyterians. I really love to study theology and stuff. But I'm not about to let the Holy Spirit get active in my life. And we want to kind of chop up God. But He said to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. You got to love Him in all those ways. You got to love Him by being filled with the Spirit. You got to love Him by knowing His Word. You got to love him by doing, what, following him. And love is an act of choice. All right, so that's enough on that. But just the dual eyes of later, or you can be ne- neutral. Now that, with that, I want to talk about, uh, you know, the mystery of election versus culpability. One of the, the debates between Erasmus and Luther. Which eventually was the debate between the reformers and with the Council of Trent was this: the, the, the Catholics were afraid that that grace grace based view of grace would lead to what what we have in a lot of corners today, a grace that's licentiousness. If you remember my whole grace series, I have grace plus five grace plus theologies, and the, the fifth one, grace plus grace is the only biblical one. But grace plus, because of grace, I don't. I can just do whatever the heck I want, and that's we that has swept the church today. That's the major predominant position. I I can choose what level of being a disciple I want to be. I can choose what kind of Christianity I want. I can, you know, it's it's me, myself, and I version of Christianity that has swept the the whole Christian world today. You know, the the old biblical concept that truth was something outside of ourselves rooted in God, and we couldn't change it or alter it or debate it or choose which parts of him we want. That's kind of gone in the church today in pretty much every section of Christianity. Now, what Erasmus was arguing in his The Freedom of the Will was, you know, he was saying that you're saved by works and so forth. But, you know, eventually that debate spun off a century and a half later to what was called Calvinism versus Arminianism. But the idea that we can, uh, that it's it's works and grace working together. But biblical grace will produce biblical works, but it's always by grace plus grace. And there's no basis in ourselves for it. Now, despite that, the Bible still holds us culpable, that is, responsible for our own sin. Now, the reason people have these debates is because many of the things of God have to be accepted as a mystery. They're seemingly paradoxical, but to the enlightened mind, by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit we can understand them, they are not antithetical. And the truth of the matter is, is that Men who are not who are natural minded who do not see fully the things of the spirit as they're revealed in the scripture, will say, "Well, if it's all by grace, then why does he still hold us responsible? Paul even says in his letter to the Romans that people give that argument against his teachings. Why does he still find fault? Remember well, uh, because that's because God is big enough to go beyond our boxes and our limited reason reasoning powers, especially by our natural mind. God has called us to choose him, even though He it's only by his grace that we can choose him. And he says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and you're held accountable for not calling on the will of the Lord. Although he's the one who empowers you to call on the name of the Lord. He makes, like in my analogy, that's the best analogy I've ever heard with the hornets. He makes you willing to be willing. And before he makes you willing to be willing, you're unwilling to be willing. You're hiding from God. You're dead. You're not even able to hear him. However, he still holds you responsible. Because he's God, he has this problem where he thinks he's God and we're not. I say that tongue-in-cheek, I'm not trying to be blasphemous. Of course, he doesn't have any problems. That's how we see it in our, We, we think God has a problem. He can't reconcile these things. We have the problem. We're called to take the mysteries of God and just use them for further worship. Like, wow, God. I always say before when I was a hippie, I said, "Wow, man!" Then I became a Christian, and I said, "Wow, God!" You know, like you when you see, when you see these truths of election and choosing and predestination and foreknowledge and adoption and so forth, they should cause you, as 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 Ephesians two says, that in the ages to come will praise the unfathomable greatness of His grace. The reason Charles Wesley wrote, "Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing." Because he wasn't a charismatic, that's why God gives you the uh, gift of speaking in tongues. Because you can't possibly sing your great Redeemer's praise. We will need all eternity to continue to praise the unfathomable greatness of His grace. Why did He choose Beth and Amber and Sydney and Davion? I don't know. <laughs> but every Sunday I thank God that He did, because I wouldn't. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have Davion to hug. So hopefully we've talked a little bit about receiving, oh my goodness, regeneration and conversion. Uh, Just hopefully next week I won't review any of this. Hopefully I've covered this now well enough that you're starting to get it. You really need to review this stuff. You kind of need to know this stuff if we're going to keep going forward and building on. I'm not, not blaming it on you that I'm not getting any further, but I just feel like I took too many words too fast. Regeneration is the whole thing that you were born dead and he gives us life. Conversion means turning. So we're going to be studying in weeks to come words like conviction, confession, repentance, renouncing, following, and so forth. Conversion is important. Amos 3 3 says "Do two people travel together without making an agreement. Now, again, I want to explain biblical knowledge. You have to be converted both intellectually or scripturally, conceptually, cognitively, and you have to be converted at the level of your will, your emotions, your spirit, your soul. You have to be choosing to seek him. It has to become who you be. You have to become a new creature in Christ Jesus that seeks God instead of running from him, that wants to know God and love God. and And, there, and therefore, you want to sit at his feet and study his word and listen to his word and so forth. Now salvation i I just want to kind of at least get down to the word convict and so i can start there next week salvation we looked at as well that's the most commonly misused word in the church today people say when maybe personal savior is but it's either that or saved people say when did you get saved and i always say i got saved in the in in all eternity then i got saved again a little bit more of my salvation was made manifest in the calling of abraham and Then, you know, then a lot of it was really made manifest in the coming of Christ, and and then Pentecost that was a big one, and then, you know, church history and the Reformation and all the reprint, you know, the the inventing of the printing press, and uh, you know, and then God applied my salvation in various ways in 1974, and I'm still being saved, and I will be saved when I go to heaven. When did you get saved? All right, so some Greek words, sozo is the, is the Greek verb. It means to rescue or deliver from danger or destruction, to make well. So it involves deliverance, healing, changing of hearts, breaking the power of iniquity and sin. Sin is a power in the scriptures, and you can only be set free. You are actually subject to that power unless God sets you free. Deliverance from demons, You can uh, inner healing, all these things are what sozo means. The noun form and the adjective form soterion and soteria, or soterion, soterion, turn it around, is where we get the theological disciplines of salvation called um, um, soteriology. Last word I want to look at is rescue or deliver. The Greek word ruamai, if you look at good English translations, about half the time they use the word rescued and half the time they use the word delivered. And I gave you a whole bunch of them there, and a bunch of scriptures there that are that you can look up on your own that use that word "rescued." And I just want to end by telling us uh, a couple uh, uh, things. When I was a kid, one of my there were certain books like "Day of Glory," which was the an hour by hour account of the first forty eight hours of the American War for Independence. I read that book so many times; it's unbelievable. And one of the books I read over and over again was a book called "When the." The night the dikes broke, or when the dikes broke, and it was about how in in the Netherlands they were, they had claimed miles and miles and miles reclaimed miles and miles and miles of pasture land and farmland by building dikes, kind of like what we did in New Orleans, uh, if you remember Hurricane Katrina. And eventually, you're going to have situations where the dikes are going to break. And so, in the 50s, there was a great event where. Uh, there was a night of storm, and I don't remember if there was an earthquake or whatever. But the dikes broke, and everyone who was below sea level, which were millions of people, woke up to find the water rising in their house. But even though they had bell, church bells, and things like that, they didn't, you know, they didn't have a, an adequate enough warning system, which is always an issue. Like we're trying to have better warning systems with tornadoes. So by the time they woke up, they were trapped. Millions of people. All they could do was go up to the the next floor, and then up, in a lot of cases, they were already on the second floor because that's where the bedrooms were. So they went to the attic, and as the attic started to fill up, they broke the, the boards and got on the roof. And then they got on the apex of the roof, the peak of the roof, and they sat there. And this is the Bible's view of the human condition. What happened next was Either they were rescued in time or they weren't. It's as simple as that. Thousands were not rescued in time. Thousands were. As soon as the news went out, every country surrounding the Netherlands, England, France, Poland, etc., Germany, sent every helicopter available. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of helicopters descended on the Netherlands and rescued these people off their roofs. But many did not get rescued. And that's the human condition. In that you, you are either rescued in Christ or not. That's why the self-help preachers are such an abomination. Because you can't help yourself. Only he can help you. And he doesn't help you. So you can have your best life now or, or any other hedonistic, self-serving purpose. He helps you so that you can become a follower of Christ, a fisher of men, and you can be, lay down your life and your wants and your best life in order to have his best life now. Which may not be a very good life as human beings look at it. It may, say, move into the ghetto and live in a poorhouse. It may say, go work among people who aren't very fun to work with. It may say, I've given you this thorn in the flesh or this disease or whatever and it's going to be a part of your Christian walk because I'm going to use it to keep you humble as I use you in great and powerful Holy Spirit ways. It's it's probably not going to be what you would call your best life. So... Um one of the things that I just want to end with with that thing is just understand what what we're trying to get to as we look at convict and stuff is we looked at the nature of man in element two uh, in element three, we looked at the ten commandments what i 'm hope what needs to happen in the church today is we uh, through lack of study, through a lot of reasons through through trying to appeal to popular messages that'll get us more people. We really don't want to talk about what sin really is. And so, like, the idea that you cannot rescue yourself is, at all is not that popular. That's why there is this uh, free will versus God's election debate. Because, you know, we don't want to admit our utter dependency on his grace. But what I need you to, to see is, is this, and I know I'm over my time, but man, uh, you know, I teach this class called The Search for Utopia, and I take a survey every call, class, and I say, how many people think man is basically good versus man is, uh, is neutral versus man has some power of twistedness that makes his, his goodness turn evil? I never have anyone choose that third choice. Never. I've never had one person, not even a Christian. Because I've had some people who say they're Christians. 80% or so choose that man is basically good. Another 10 or 20% say man is basically neutral. And therefore it's like their environment and we need more money for education and so forth. No one says there's a fundamental flaw in man's nature. But let me tell you this. If you study history and you read literature, I, there was a time I was into Russian novels, if, uh, there's a whole branch of novels called utopian and dystopian novels. The reason there's dystopi- dystopian knowledge is the most common theme in music, art, and literature throughout the history of mankind is man's inhumanity to his fellow man. Everyone knows something's wrong. But nobody wants to go to the full biblical definition of what's wrong. But as we're going to see in weeks to come, you have to go to the full biblical definition of what's wrong in order to have hoped to be set free. Amen.